Good morning, gentlemen. Well, if you were born in Kansas City and then graduated from Ole Miss, I just want to extend my sympathies to you this morning. That'd be a tough combination. There must be somebody in the room who's had that happen to them, born in Kansas City and graduated from Ole Miss. Well, you know, life is full of troubles. Uh, and that leads us to our text today, which we'll get to in a moment. Hey, um, I had a couple of questions last week. One of you asked me about this text in uh, 15.3 that we looked at last time. And I made comment about it, but I think you're asking me to make more comment about it. Where uh, God says to uh, Saul through Samuel, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. And then this is the tough part but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And I mentioned to you last week that when anyone tries to do something like that today, it's just wicked, absolutely wicked. It is evil, violent, has no sanction from the Lord whatsoever. So whether it's a a Christian crusade or a Muslim jihad, both of those are completely inappropriate. And certainly... When we go into places and try to manipulate people, or in the case of Islam, of course, in some cases, going in with a scimitar and either you submit or you pay extra taxes or your life can come to an end, that's just wicked. The, the leader, religious leaders of those groups uh, in both instances, both in the Christian instance some centuries ago and in the uh, Islamic instance now, are acting out of the will of God and claiming to act within the will of God. So it can be very confusing to their adherents. But it's just cl- they clearly have no sanction for that. Because remember, I said this was a theocracy. God established His people. If you oppose His people, you oppose Him. It's, that's still true today, but the sanctions, the consequences of opposing His people, when you have a theocracy, is physical punishment. Now, of course, we saw that the... The next time we're going to have a theocracy is when Jesus Christ comes back. And when He does, anyone who's not among His people will be punished for their sins physically. And of course, it's going to be very violent and messy and tragic for those who don't know the Lord. So what happens in Old Testament ethics is you have what's known as intrusion ethics. You have the ethics of the end time brought in in some way in the present time. And that's what's happening. Remember, Amalek opposed Moses and the Israelites when they were coming to the promised land. And God said to them at that time that they were under His judgment. And now God is exercising His judgment on the Amalekites. And He chose to do it in space and time now instead of waiting until the end. God has the right to do that when He wants to do it, especially when He has a theocracy. And in a theocracy, God is the king He rules and issues the orders. And in this case, He issues the orders. And so let us just be warned by this, that there are consequences around the world with people who don't know the Lord and reject Him. And there are consequences for their children. There are consequences for you and me. If if we're walking with the Lord and teaching our children, our children are blessed. And if we're disobeying the Lord and going off in strange directions, our children are more likely to come under a curse because there'll be no reversal upon their own sin for which they're responsible. So every human being deserves to be destroyed. Maybe I should have started there. Uh, So that ultimately in the theological, ultimate ethical sense, we have no complaint because we're sinners. We broke His law and therefore we're subject to punishment, death. And He said so from the beginning. We stared in His face and took the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and ate it right up in his face, and he warned us. So we have no complaint. But what's happening here, it's a, it's a judgment before the end time. It's an end time judgment in time and space. That's what it is, because you have a theocracy in the Old Testament. So it, it looks wicked, but it's not, because God's judgments are true, and to judge sinners is not wicked. To destroy sinners is not wicked. It is right. And that's the reason that we sing amazing grace. We don't sing amazing justice, how good God is to us, that we're better than average, we're better than other people, and therefore He saved us. We don't sing a song like that because it's not true. Anybody who 
is going to heaven is going because they don't deserve it. And we deserve to be destroyed like the Amalekites. So I think that's the way we've got to look at it. And of course, to, to modern ears who are very sensitive to these things, it just sounds outrageous. And people will say, well, you're, you're no better than the Muslims. Oh, really? Is, is Christianity no better than Islam? Islam has no New Testament. Islam has no Redeemer, has no Savior, has no Mediator. Uh, and our New Testament is the one who tells us that theocracy is over, the time of repentance is here for all nations. Come in now. Full reprieve is given to everybody. And the announcement is the kingdom of God is coming. It's here and it's coming. And when it comes in its conclusion, we'll be back to the theocracy and sinners will be judged. And the, the day of judgment will be here and, and will be divided among sheep and goats. So that's the significance of the Old Testament. And that's one reason it's so helpful to us is because it shows us something of the judgment of God in space and time and what that looks like. And it's not fun to look at. And neither will the judgment be when Christ returns. So I, that's, that's the best I can do on it. Please feel free to give me pushback or further questions on it by email if, you, if you'd like to. And then one of you asked about Samuel's sons. What in the world happened to them? You know, Eli had these wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Wouldn't you think that Samuel would have learned? How come his sons too were corrupt? I don't know. You know, that's, I've told you before the three words we need to get really good at is I don't know. And I don't know, but you do see a pattern there, don't you? I mean, you see Eli with his wicked sons. You see Samuel, whose sons really were not qualified to succeed him. And that's the reason the people, one reason the people clamored for a king. There were other reasons. But they didn't want Samuel's sons. They, they weren't Samuel. And then you get to David's life. And of course you end up with Solomon who succeeded him. But you also have Absalom and Amnon. And you say, what in the world is that all about? Didn't David learn from Samuel and from Eli? Well, don't we? I mean, it's a perennial problem. Sometimes men will be very effective and successful outside the home even spiritually, and they will not be so successful when in the home. Now, I realize that only God can regenerate a person. Only God can draw a person to Himself. No father can make his children be believers. But sometimes we bear more fruit outside the home than we do inside the home, and I think we all just should be warned by it. Be very careful, especially if you're leading in public. Be very careful that your public life and your devotion to it spiritually, ministerially, is always contingent upon the needs that are at home. I mean, I've always told my wife that the moment that public ministry threatens the integrity or the health of our home, I'm out of here. And I'm going to go sell steel again like I did 35 years ago. Uh, because I know that I'm to be a father and a husband. To be a pastor, that's inferential. I could be a pastor or not be a pastor. But once I get married, I am a husband. Once I have children, I am a father. That can't change. And so that calling has to come first. So I would just say probably the best lesson for us to draw from it is let's all just be very careful that things come, we'll be talking about the heart today, things come from the inside out. You, you want your, your character, your uh, moral life, your spiritual life, and your ministry to go from the inside out. So you, you cultivate the heart, you cultivate the marriage, you cultivate the home, cultivate the church, cultivate the community, and go to the world. And you're, you're showing your deepest commitments as you go out this way instead of the opposite. And men are very disposed to want to be successful out here. And I, I think that's a peculiar uh, threat to manhood, frankly. I think men are much more inclined to want to be successful out here in the eyes of their peers. Women are much more aware, not always, but I think if I were cutting an average here, on the average, women are more aware of being successful on the inside, men looking out here, and I think that's very dangerous. On the other hand, it's very useful because so many of you are very useful out there. We want you to be useful out there. Just don't ignore in here. I think that's the lesson we take from Samuel's sons. Well, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And what we've had then is now Saul has failed. And it's a final failure. He has turned his back on the Lord. 
And he made all kinds of excuses, tried to blame other people, tried to minimize his sin, even tried to discount it or deny it. And Samuel, the preacher, didn't let him get by with it. And Samuel had to deliver the message that Saul's kingdom, his dynasty, was rejected. And that God was going to move over to a neighbor and anoint him the king. Saul didn't know when, he didn't know who. But Samuel gave him that message. What we're going to see in the text today is something very important for us to grasp. And that is that in the church and in the world, when things are going south, when it looks like things are just, we're coming apart at the seams, it looks like we've lost all leadership and and you, you find yourself sometimes in despair about the direction of things. Maybe you feel this way even about your own family or some of your friendships or maybe your business. You've got to remember that God is always in charge of history. He rules it. And He's ruling it with a purpose. And God is not like some weak uncle. God is powerful and He's able to bring His purposes to pass in time and space. And he has every intention to do so. We'll also discover again that God's purposes are fulfilled in many ways, but in one of the primary ways is that he raises up men and women to lead. He raises up leaders, including you. He raised you up. This is part of his purpose. This is the way in which he blesses the nations, is raising men and women up. So... We're going to see that He does it again. When it looks like your king is a massive failure and therefore Israel now is unprotected and going to be in chaos, all these things that Samuel's deeply worried about, God comes in and takes over and tells Samuel what to do and tells the nation what to do. It's an amazing gift of His love. You'll see the same thing, of course, in Jesus' call of His own disciples. Jesus is in charge. He calls His disciples. He gets the ones He wants. And when Israel looks like it's in total disarray and nobody seems to be believing anything about the kingdom, God raises up His own Son who then raises up His disciples and He begins to change the world through them. So let's take a look at what God is doing in 1 Samuel 16 when we're in a mess. Uh, Chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, 
a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Please notice what God does for us. God chooses His servant. God chooses His servant. It's written all through the text. He says in verse 1, I have provided for myself a king. And in verse 3, And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. If one thing is clear here, it is who is in charge. God is in charge of His people and of history. And Samuel, the preacher, is to do exactly what he says to do. Go get this one and get him and anoint him for me. So God chooses servants for Himself and for His people. And He's chosen you if you're a believer in Christ. He's chosen you for Himself and for His people. That's the reason you've been chosen. As uh, Jesus says in John chapter 15, uh, I've chosen you to go and bear fruit. He says this to His disciples. Jesus chose His disciples. He chose us to go and bear fruit, to do good, to expand the kingdom. God is choosing His servant here, uh, David. Now notice in verse 1 two things. First of all, we must learn how to grieve over sin. And I say that for this reason. Samuel has obviously been grieving deeply. And he is not chided for being in grief. He is chided for grieving too long. We'll get to that in a moment. But he's not chided for grieving. Why was he grieving? Look, he really loved Saul. Do you think Samuel gave this announcement to Saul and told him he was rejected when Samuel was really happy about it? Do you think Samuel enjoyed that? Do you think preachers enjoy talking about judgment? Or talking about sin or its consequences? Does anyone enjoy this? Does anyone enjoy talking about hell or judgment, any of that? If you do, there's something sick in your religion. Samuel was not sick. He was a healthy follower of God, and it grieved him. He loved Saul, and he also loved Israel. And here's Israel's king that has fallen before the Lord and no longer has the Lord's favor. How is Israel going to survive? And I just think we need to pause for just a moment and ask ourselves, do you remember how to grieve? When you, when you see... Racial injustice, socioeconomic injustice, do you know how to grieve over that? Does it weigh upon you? Is it a burden? It ought to be a burden. Anyone who's seeking God's kingdom, as I think Samuel was, not perfectly, but he was seeking God's kingdom. I think he grieved over the sin around him, the, the decay, the corruption, the chaos, the problems that were among the people of God. Does it grieve you when you see the sexual standards coming so low and just being just vomited out on our young people through internet? Does it grieve you? Ezra, I mentioned the text here, when he looked at Israel's sins when they came back from exile, he just, we're just told he sat down and pulled his, the hair of his beard out. He was so grief-stricken. And it seems to me that the people of God have forgotten how to lament. Look at Lamentations. Actually, most of your Psalms maybe not most of them, but close to half of them, it seems to me, are psalms of grief and lament and sorrow and complaint. Because the servant of God, including David here, the servants of God are raised up to be the grievers. That's one thing we're supposed to do. 
God anoints us to care for His kingdom. And when the world is not in accord with His kingdom, it's our assignment to lament. And it just seems to me the American Christians don't know how to do this very well. And I think books like Lamentations ought to be a little bit more precious to us. We need to learn how to grieve. But also, we must learn, secondly, how to look to God for the future. And this is what God is saying to Samuel. How long will you grieve over Saul? So there's a limit to our grief. Yes, we grieve, but we do not despair. And there's a difference. And Samuel was despairing. Now, I think there's a message here, in my opinion, for for both young men and old men. To young men, it seems to me that the first message is more important. You do need to learn how to grieve over things that you've gotten used to. You grew up with it. You grew up with pornography on the Internet. You grew up with all kinds of injustices in community, socioeconomic injustices. You've gotten used to them. And all these things we need to learn how to grieve over and not just dismiss them. And as the church has moved into minority status, sometimes the best way for you to handle that psychologically is just forget it. I'm not even going to think about it. Well, you've got to think about it. And you can't give up hopes and striving for righteousness, public righteousness and private righteousness. So I'd say to young men, you probably need to listen especially to the first part. Older men, you need to listen to the second part. I hear this all the time and I say it because I'm an old man too. You know, things ain't the way they used to be. Things are going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you can hear guys say this all the time. And I want to say to you, okay, fine, I, I get it. Now what? Now let's get on with it. God's alive. He has words for us to obey, whether you're in the majority or the minority, spiritually. And you have to remember something. Our forefathers enjoyed a little moment in history and a little space on the planet when God's people were in the majority in the culture. That's the minority report from the, around the world. Most churches in most nations don't have that privilege. So now, why don't you join the rest of the world and let's all learn how to obey God and delight ourselves in Him while being a cognitive and spiritual minority. My African-American friends tell me all the time, you know, you evangelicals need to learn a few things from African-Americans about how to be a good minority. And I think they're right. Study African-American uh, theology and, and churchmanship and see how they survive and learn a few lessons from them. So old men, don't forget God's alive. And you, you may see things going south, but let me tell you, God's in charge of history. And He has a reason for this. And some of it may be humility. Some of it may be dependence. Maybe we need to pray more than we ever did before in our youth. There are all kinds of things that we can learn, but trust Him, He's in charge and He's on the move and He is here. Secondly, not only, oh, I, I meant, failed to mention that he chooses his servant after we have failed, and uh, I guess that's obvious, but B, he chooses his servant through our trusting obedience. So he calls us out of our despair, and he says, I want you to move forward now. I want you to do this. He gives us his commandments. So yes, you can see all kinds of problems out here. I'm giving you my commandments. Now you obey the commandments. And through that obedience, often the Lord will carry out his choosing of his people. And look how it's done with Samuel. First of all, we believe that God will provide a way. Samuel asks the question, God, you want me to do what? You want me to go into Bethlehem, a village of Judea, where Saul is recognized as king, and you want me to anoint another king? You, you want me to do that? God, is this, this time you want me just to give up my life? I mean, it's like suicide. And the Lord says, I'm going to provide for you. He says, look, do this. Take a heifer with you. And you just say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse. Why? Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And when God put that little marriage together, He did it because the Redeemer was going to come from that line. The King was going to come from the line of Ruth and Boaz. Jesse's the grandson. He says, you go get Ruth and Boaz his grandson. Go to his house. Got a little surprise for you. <laughs> so, that's exactly what happens. Because Samuel, secondly, obeys his command. Now notice, when God tells us He's going to provide a way, He doesn't always tell us what the way is. And I put a couple examples here, maybe three examples. You have Abraham. 
who regularly is being told to do things and he does not told how it's going to work out. He says, go to a land I will show you. Okay, so which way do you want me to walk? Why don't you walk this way, okay? And I'll show you as you go. You obey him, get on the move, and then he'll show you as you go. He'll give you enough to take the first step and he'll give you the rest of it when you need it. You take what you have and obey what you have and you trust him to provide at the end of the line. And that's exactly what he did to Abraham, certainly with the sacrifice of his son Isaac. Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And sure enough, there's the ram. And God provides the sacrifice in the place of his son Isaac. And, and likewise, I mentioned here uh, in John 21, 22, uh, God's going to provide a way. Peter, who has failed miserably, is now before the Lord at the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. And the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? Peter says, you know all things, you know I love you. Feed my sheep, he says. And then Peter is really concerned about whether he's going to fail again. And Jesus promises him that he's going to be martyred. That's how his life's going to end. And then Peter, you remember what he does? He looks at John and says, what about him? And Jesus says to him something along the order of, don't worry about him. You just stay focused on you. So sometimes, you know, we're concerned about whether things are going to turn out all right. How's it going to work out for us? I'm going to end up with as much savings in my account as, as Joe does, or am I going to have as big a house as Sam does, or am I going to be able to provide? Just follow me. Don't worry about those guys. You follow me, and I'll show you at the end how I'm going to manage this. And so we obey his command. And here you have a very interesting case where, of course, uh, Samuel is obeying the command to... Uh, tell the people that he's come to offer a sacrifice. Now, we come up with an interesting ethical question here, if I can take a little side road. Some people say, now the Lord told him to tell a partial truth here. So why do you come? I do come peaceably. But, you know, on the other hand, it's not real peaceable to go into a village and anoint a replacement for their king. <laughs> that's that's going to cause problems for Bethlehem if it ever gets found out. But on the other hand, Samuel does come peaceably. It's true that he does. He has no intent to harm those people. And likewise, he doesn't tell them everything that he's going to do. He doesn't tell them he's going to anoint the next king. He just says, I've come to sacrifice. That's true. Now the question is, are partial truths allowable in the Christian life? I sure hope so. <laughs> I tell them all the time. <laughs> because, and sometimes I lie. You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm illustrating a sermon, for example, and one of you just told me something that really illustrates a point great from your personal life, but it's a little embarrassing to you, well, by the time I end up with a story, I mean, you're a 50-year-old man, it's going to be a 30-year-old woman, <laughs> you know, because I'm going to disguise you completely because I'm guarding your confidentiality. So there are things like this where uh, that, there's a case where it's, it's actually not the true facts, but I think it's warranted. Uh, in order to guard each other's uh, confidentialities because in no way am I trying to take advantage of you. I'm just trying to guard a person's confidential life. So lies, wicked, are untruths or even partial truths for the purpose of taking advantage of another person. For example, people will ask, well, if you were harboring Jews in Germany and a Nazi knocks on your door and says, do you have any Jews in your house? Would you tell the truth? Heck no! Of course not. Because the truth will harm the Jew and harm the Nazi. It's destructive for everybody. This person is not going to take the truth and misuse it. So of course I'm going to say no. And I know that's a difficult choice. I believe in being men of our word and telling the truth. But... It seems to me that when you look at the larger scope of things, we have to use wisdom. And we have to be aware wisely of the purpose of language and communication and the likely outcomes from it. So we tell partial truths all the time. For example, if your wife puts on a new pair of shoes and she's walking to church in them, and she says, honey, do you like my shoes? Now the truth of the matter is, no, you don't like those shoes. They cost too much and they're pretty ugly. That's what you think. You're an idiot if you say it. So you come up with a partial truth. Honey, I think that those shoes are really draw attention to your outfit. 
I don't know, make up something. That's true. To the best of your ability, you say something that's true. And so when she, you know, you, you, and usually that's enough. So partial truths are very helpful in relationships and in expanding the kingdom of God, as long as you're not trying to take advantage of somebody. When you're trying to deceive someone to their disadvantage, then I think there's no question that your lie is wicked. But if you're telling a partial truth is here, Samuel is doing it for the good of the kingdom, for the good of the Bethlehemites, and he's certainly doing it in obedience to the Lord. The Lord is telling a partial truth. As a matter of fact, we always tell partial truths. You can't tell the whole truth about every situation. You know, when you go to court, you raise your hand, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, if I were really theologically correct, I'd say, Your Honor, I'll tell the truth, and I'll tell nothing but the truth, but I don't think I have time to tell you the whole truth. Uh, now, but here's what he means. Will you, will you reveal all the truth that's relevant to this case, even if it condemns you? And there you have to say, yes, Your Honor. I will seek to reveal all the truths that are relevant to this case, even if it undermines my case. Now, that's what you're promising to do, and that you should do if you're in a court of law. Enough on that. We obey His commands uh, because we trust that He'll provide a way. Now, He chooses His servants after we have failed through our trusting obedience, but contrary to our biases. Very interesting, His choices. Notice in verses 6 and 7a that what impresses us usually doesn't impress God. What impresses us usually does not impress God. Here he goes to the house of Jesse and seven good-looking men are there, young men. And the oldest of the men, and of course in this culture, in uh, the second uh, right at the beginning of the first millennium uh, B.C., uh, you have a very patriarchal society, and the oldest son has tremendous privileges and responsibilities. And, of course, in a dynasty, he's always the one who succeeds unless there are special considerations. So Eliab is the natural one to look at. The guy's tall, he's good-looking, looks like he can handle things. He's been babysitting his brothers for years, knows how to run things, good manager. All those things are there. And Samuel takes a look at him and just intuitively and instinctively he said, we got our man. And God says, no, you don't. <laughs> Samuel goes, shucks. That's twice in a row that I blew it. <laughs> I picked Saul and I picked Eli Eliab. And in both cases, Samuel was wrong. Even wise Samuel. Remember, God's in charge. And he doesn't always do things the way you think he should do them. And things that appear to you to be the natural ways in which leadership would develop are not his ways. And uh, here, uh, what we find is that, that God says, I have rejected him. That's very strong language. Because he's, he's wanting to get the point across to Samuel. Samuel, just like with Saul, wrong guy. I'm rejecting him as king. Not rejecting him as a believer. I'm rejecting him as king. And so what it sometimes impresses us doesn't necessarily impress God. We need to remember that. Uh, that uh, the outward appearances that impress us so much about leadership are not the ways that He normally works. I remember uh, when I was selling steel in Bethlehem, with Bethlehem Steel Corporation. I lived in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I wasn't a Christian at the time. And, uh, but I went to church a couple times in a couple of years. I mean, I was, you know, I was a decent, upright person. So everybody should go to church every once in a while. So I did. And I remember going to church... It was a Presbyterian church, as a matter of fact. I was Baptist, but I went to Presbyterian church. And the reason, by the way, I'm a Presbyterian, you all know I married one. That's how I got here. But uh, I went to the Presbyterian church, and I looked at the bulletin. And on the back of the, of the church bulletin, it had the elders. And I didn't know what an elder was too much, but I figured they were the guys in charge. So I looked at that list, and doggone it, it looked like an organizational chart from Bethlehem Steel Corporation. I mean, all the executives, the upper-level managers, they were all the elders. And poor slobs like me who were down the lower end of the totem pole, I didn't see any of those people. I thought, that's interesting. We just took the organizational chart of the largest company in town. These were the impressive people with power and influence. Let's just move them right over here, and they'll take over in the church. Now, I wasn't a Christian, like I say, but I just never, you know, I obviously remembered that 40 years later. I still remember it. Something seemed a little fishy about that. It is fishy. 
The things that seem so natural to you are not necessarily the way God is working when He's raising up His leaders. And I'll give you a classic example. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. There was nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. And when we looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, we were told by Isaiah centuries before, you will not recognize Him because He's so impressive a a figure in society. He will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That's going to be your leader. So let's remember, what impresses us doesn't necessarily impress God. But secondly, notice what impresses God usually doesn't impress us either. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so they go through all seven sons. And Jesse is a little more disappointed every time. Oh, you don't want my oldest? How about my second? You don't want my second? How about my third? You don't want third? How about my fourth? Well, here we are down to the seventh kid. And Samuel, to his credit, doesn't just opt for the best that's available. He waits for God's man, and he knows he doesn't have him. And he says, I'm not getting anything from the Lord on this. Do you have any other sons? Oh, yeah, but he's, he's the punk. <laughs> and, I mean, he's a little kid. We, you know, we use the, the youngest to go out there and take care of the animals. You know? So he's got the sheep. And, you know, because of that, he's, he's unclean, he's filthy, he's been out with sheep all day. So obviously he's not the one you want. Go get him. We're not going to sit down and eat until you bring him back. So they go get little, little David. And he comes in, and you see his appearance here. And that's the one. He's a man after God's own heart. Now this is amazing. You say, what is it about David's heart? This man who we're going to see later on commits adultery, murders people, disobeys the Lord. Why in the world do we call this man a man after God's own heart? And poor old Saul, all he did was keep a man alive he was supposed to kill and have a sacrifice a little earlier than he was supposed to have it. And he's completely rejected. Well, you can see it in the way they respond to their sins. Saul makes excuses, minimizes, blames other people. And you'll see when we get to David, he just simply says, I have sinned. He repents. He humbles himself. He loves the Lord. Instead of himself first, he loves the Lord. That's what makes him David. That's what makes him God's chosen person. It doesn't matter whether he's first in line, eighth in line. doesn't matter whether he's tall or short, ugly or handsome. He loves the Lord. That's the primary commitment, to be an effective leader in God's kingdom. He has a heart after God. And then notice he not only had a heart, but he was young and obscure. He was the least likely of the brothers. And you know, Paul says to Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. Timothy, I know you're preaching to people older than you are. And he, te- he tells Timothy, Timothy, deal with these men like your fathers. Show respect to older men. Show deference and respect to older women. Treat younger women like sisters, he says. So we show respect with age. And if you're a If you're leading a small group or you're leading a Sunday school class or you're a pastor here or a Christian worker somewhere and you're teaching to people a lot older than you are, you must show them respect in every way, in private and in public. But don't let them despise your youth. You have a message to deliver and it must be delivered. It'll be delivered with youthful respect. And you know, when when I preach at the age of 35, I preach differently than I do at 63. Now I can trash you guys anytime I want to. I'm as old as you are. But when you're 35, you have to be more respectful. But you still say what you need to say. So you just say it. You'll take a little longer to say it, and you'll couch it in a little bit more respectful language than an old man might do. So you show respect. But you do not withhold the message. You do not withhold the ministry. And you realize that when God chooses you as His follower to do His work, to be a fisher of men, you go be a fisher of men, no matter what the men think. So that's what He's He's doing here. David was young and obscure, and don't let his brothers despise his youth, which they will do in the next chapter, as you know. They'll try to despise his youth. David's got an answer for that. Notice David was a shepherd. That's great training. And Jesus was called a shepherd. And his disciples were told to be shepherds. And my honest advice to you, every one of us should be shepherds. If Jesus calls himself a shepherd, I want to be a shepherd. 
Now, that doesn't mean you get paid for it. It doesn't mean you go through seminary and ordination. I'm just talking about being a shepherdly person. That's what a person does who's walking in the steps of Jesus. They shepherd. They care for other people. That's what David had been trained for. And you'll find in Psalm 78, he did it skillfully and with integrity of heart. He had learned to be a skillful shepherd, and we'll read about him later. He would take on animals, vicious animals, to defend his sheep. And he learned early on how to protect sheep, how to feed sheep, how to care for them. He did it skillfully, and he did it with integrity of heart in Psalm 78. That's exactly the way we should do it. He was also handsome. And let me just say, here's a good place to pause for just a moment and say, you know what? If you're handsome, that doesn't mean you're excluded. We'll take you too. And I just said a moment ago that often God chooses surprising sorts of people and there are some very non-handsome people uh, who are doing wonderful things for the kingdom. I mean, downright ugly people who are doing great things for the kingdom of God. But I just want to say, here's a case where He also uses handsome people so you can get in too. You just need to be a little bit more humble than the rest of us. And he does this with Joseph. Joseph was a very handsome young man. He does it with Esther who had a wonderful figure and she was a beautiful woman. And boy, did she ever change uh, the world through her ministry. And then, of course, Acts 18, you've got Apollos who was very eloquent. He was incredibly gifted as an orator. And Paul wasn't. But God used Paul and he used Apollos. So thank God. He, he takes hands and and gifted people too. Now, secondly, God anoints His servant. He chooses them, and He anoints it. He chose you. If you're a follower of Christ, the only reason you're a follower of Christ, He chose you. You ask me why? I don't know. Makes no sense to me, but He chose you. When He chooses you, He also anoints you. If you're a follower of Christ, you're anointed, just like David is anointed here. And here's what we know. First of all, there's an anointing with oil. What does that mean? I've listed some texts here. When you're anointed with oil, you're separated unto God. And prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. They were separated to God. They were made holy. They were put over. So if you anoint a priest with special anointing oil, he's set apart to be a priest and to offer sacrifices, to make prayers on behalf of the people in the Old Testament. Same thing, you anoint a king, he's set apart to the Lord. He's holy for his use. But then you'll see, obviously, that in the Old Testament, as well, especially in the New Testament, there's an anointing with the Spirit. And this also is for purposes of separating us and equipping us for service. And we're told of Jesus in Isaiah 61. When He comes, He'll be one who's anointed with the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter describes Him as one who has been anointed to full measure with the Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, He was anointed not with oil. He was anointed with the Spirit. And we're told in 1 John chapter 2 that you're anointed to give you knowledge and to empower you for ministry. You're the anointed people of God. So you've been, you've been called, you've been chosen, you've been anointed by the Spirit. That's what Pentecost is all about. God just pours out the oil of His anointing upon His entire church so your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will have dreams and your old men as well. So we're anointed by the Spirit, set apart for His holy use. And if you're a believer, that's what's happened to you. You've been set apart and equipped and empowered for His holy use. Now lastly, God deploys His servant. Now this is an amazing text. Because we've seen in the, the first 13 verses how David has been chosen, an unlikely person, anointed with the oil uh, of... Samuel, and set apart for God's purposes. And now immediately, second half of this chapter, he's now thrown in the lion's den. So he's anointed in the first half of the chapter, and now he's in deep trouble in the second half of the chapter. He's been called into the palace by the very one who's going to chase him for the rest of his life. But notice here that God deploys his servant right into trouble, verses 14 through 17. You know, one scholar said, the thing that you have to know about disciples of Jesus, they're delirious, happy, and, and always in trouble. And we, we are. God throws us right into trouble. And you have this throughout the... I mean, look at Acts 14, 22. Anyone who's in ministry is going to be persecuted. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed. 
So we are anointed for His service and put into a wicked world to serve Him, the Holy King, in a wicked world. What do you expect? It's going to be fireworks. So just come on. Let's get on with it. So David has to understand that he's going to be put into trouble. And you and I have to understand it too. In Mark chapter 1, what happens to Jesus, the anointed one, the one who's going to serve us, he's baptized by the Spirit and then thrust out into the wilderness to face wild beasts and the devil himself. So if this is where Jesus is going, let me tell you something, that's where you're going because you're in Jesus. So if that happens to Him, that's going to happen to you. You should be ready for this. That's what it means to be anointed, to serve the Lord in difficult places, into trouble. Now notice B, though, when you get to verse 18, He takes us through the trouble. So yeah, He takes you into trouble, but He's going to take you through the trouble. And that's the reason we say when we look at the storm in Mark chapter 4 where where these disciples are in a storm they think they're going to sink and Jesus, don't you care, they say to Him. But how did this whole thing get started? Jesus took them into the storm. He's the one who said, let's get in the boat and go the other side. He started it. And He's the Son of God. He knows how to predict the weather. He knows a storm is coming. And He says, let's get in the boat. And if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you know you can walk around it. Why wouldn't He just walk them around, go around around the storm. Well, here's the answer. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's forever beneath the dignity of the Lord to take us around a storm when He can take us through one instead. Because Jesus is the Lord of the storm as He shows them in the storm. And you don't know that He's the Lord until you get in the storm and see how He's ruling the universe even in the midst of your being in the storm. So here we go. He's into trouble, but He's going to go through trouble. Now notice, first of all, as He leads us through the trouble, He uses our gifts. God uses our gifts. David was not bereft of gifts. David was a very gifted person. Once again, it's true, God uses ordinary people like Peter. Peter was untrained. Peter was naturally a coward. Peter was naturally a braggadocio. God had to do a lot of work to get any good out of Peter. It's true. Peter was a very ordinary man. Maybe he was a little less than ordinary. I don't know. But he was an ordinary man. It's also true that God used Paul who was exquisitely trained and had champagne tastes and who had a massive intellect and who had a natural sort of courage even before his conversion. God takes those eminent gifts of the Apostle Paul, lights them on fire, and he becomes the greatest evangelist who ever lived outside of the Lord Jesus himself. So it's true. He uses people like Peter and me It's also true that he uses people like Paul and some of my friends who absolutely astound me with their intelligence, the books they read, the books they write, the things they remember, the ability to think, the way they love their friends. I'm just amazed at some of my friends. And God uses them too. And he takes their gifts and uses them. So if you're gifted, just realize God's going to take all your gifts. And for the first time in your life, he's going to inflame them, bring them to full power and align them and focus them on something really good. Notice, secondly, God places us. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. God will place you. Notice, David doesn't have to advance himself. He doesn't have to go over to the palace and say, Hey, if anybody's looking for a harp player, I'm pretty good at it. Why don't you suggest my name? He doesn't drop his resume in there. He doesn't lay hints. He doesn't worry about his career path. He's keeping sheep. He's fine. And he lets the updraft of God's calling put him in places where he needs to be to serve the Lord. And I suggest in an age when we're so pushing ourselves to be successful, it would be awfully nice to take a page out of David's book, take a page out of Jesus' book, take a page out of Paul's book, and see how the Lord opens the doors for you when He wants you to serve and in the way He wants you to serve, and to find contentment. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 7. Find contentment in what you're doing. He says, if you're a slave, be a good one. If you get the freedom to be free, take your freedom. But either way, don't worry about it. The main thing is give the Lord your heart. Do you love Him? Love Him in whatever you're doing. Then He'll make the way for you. That's exactly what's happening with David here. Thirdly, we must go where He sends us. And so Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. 
David followed what was clearly the path laid out for him by the Lord without complaint. Go be a harp player and be a servant in the house of the king who's eventually going to try to chop your neck off. You go and serve. And as Elizabeth Elliot once said, if we sing where he leads me, I will follow. We must also sing what he feeds me, I will swallow. And so often we lay claim to our our obedience and our humility and our courage to go wherever He wants to take us, and then we spend our whole time complaining about the facilities. So David goes, and he goes because he knows the Lord is in it. Now lastly, notice in verses 22 and 23 that God empowers us for His ministry. Gentlemen, He's not going to call you and anoint you and deploy you and then abandon you. Have any of you found that to be the case? Has He ever abandoned you when He's opened the door for ministry, put something upon your heart, led you into it? Has He abandoned you? Has He left you alone to yourself? Has He not been willing to give you wisdom and and work out circumstances for you? God's Spirit equips us. And I've listed several cases there where this is true. And certainly with the Apostle Paul himself. Paul says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, you remember last year when we studied it, He says in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, when he looks at this massive ministry in Corinth, this wild and crazy city with a pretty wild and crazy church. And and he's being opposed by super apostles who are very slick, very attractive, very bright, very winsome, and very skilled in oratory. And Paul's not any of those, except bright. And Paul is saying, who's sufficient for these things? Who's equal to the task? And of course you expect the answer to be, well, nobody is because we're all just men. Nobody's sufficient for this. But you get to the end of 2 Corinthians and Paul is pleading before the Lord and he hears the Lord say to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And here's the answer. Who's sufficient for these things? You are. By the grace of God. Not because of your intrinsic sufficiency as a human being, but because of the sufficiency that God the Holy Spirit gives you when He takes up residence in your heart and empowers you to live out the purposes that He gave you in your life. His grace is sufficient for you. This is what our Lord Jesus did for us. He came and depended completely upon His Father. And He came to lay His life down on the cross. Who could do that? Only Christ trusting in His Father. Not my will, but Thine be done, O Lord. If there's any way for this cup to pass for me, may it be so, but... Not my will, but yours be done. And by being full of the Spirit and focused on the Lord, he was given courage and wisdom to go right to the cross and to trust the Lord with the outcome. And three days later, he came roaring out of the tomb. And because of that, you too will come roaring out of your tomb. You have nothing to fear. Trust in the Lord. He's called you, anointed you. He's deploying you. And by his Spirit, he'll enable you to fulfill the task that's set before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the encouragement it gives us to walk in the way of one who is chosen and anointed and deployed by Your Spirit into various places of services today. Some of us in our businesses, some in our schools, some in our ministries, all of us all over town doing different things. Lord, we would do them all for You as men who are deployed under the power of the Holy Spirit. Grant us, Lord, your favor and your blessing. Grant us your wisdom and courage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.